I want to know the truth. This world offers me more confusion than answers. What does it mean to live in truth and follow Jesus? Who is he calling us to be? He has given us his word to find exactly what we are looking for. He is what we need. If you've got your Bibles, I would invite you to turn over to Titus 1. It'll take me a few minutes to get to the text today and the teaching, but Titus chapter 1 is where I will be. We started a series, we're in the third week of it, that we've titled, What Is? The first week we established what is truth, and we looked at what defines truth, that which is consistent with reality, that which uh, is, is represented in the will, the mind, the character, uh, the glory of God, truth. And if you miss these messages, please go back and listen. Last week, we laid out a blueprint, if you will. What is man? What is woman? What is a man? What is a woman? And we started looking at God's blueprint in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, looking at the equality that God has created, uh, the differences in men and women, as well as the responsibilities. Today, I want to drill deeper, and I want to deal with the concept of what is a man, and when you work on a definition of what is a man, uh, it is absolutely important, again, that we go back to Scripture and allow God to give us our blueprint and define for us what it means to be a man. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for every person in this room, for those that are watching online now, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would open our hearts and minds to you, your truth, and I pray that you would speak with clarity. I pray that we would be open to your teaching, open to your leading, and I pray that you would have your way for your glory in this space. Father, I pray that I would be a responsible steward of your word, of your truth, of your grace. I pray that I would be responsible in bringing glory to you and good to my brothers and sisters in this room. So I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is... A man. I think one of the greatest challenges that we have as Christ followers is to carefully examine cultural issues through a biblical lens. One of the greatest challenges that we have is to make sure that we look at whatever the cultural issues are of our day through a biblical lens. That being said, when it comes to defining masculinity, when it comes to defining what is a man, it can be a challenge in our culture, especially if you listen to the world and not the word. We must conclude that the word of God has final authority. As a young boy growing up, my understanding of manhood was distorted in a thousand different ways. As a young boy growing up, I got introduced to perverted sexual imagery called porn. I got introduced early on to just vulgar, inappropriate jokes. I got introduced to brutal, just jacked up language. I got introduced to alcoholism. I got introduced to, to sin. And I was wondering, what is a man? Is it more than just being 
an adult male? What is a man? I was told, even as a young guy, that uh, to be a man means that you get the trophy girl. You're tough like Rocky, bro, if you're really a man. You become obsessed with money, notoriety, popularity, fame. If you're a real man, you party like a rock star. Go for the gusto. That's what I was told. And if you listen to the cultural twisted messages that are being sent forth today, even now for older guys, we get these messages that say uh, from drug companies, if you've lost your masculinity, we've got a pill for your ill to keep you a man. Is that what it means to be a man? But that's what we're being told. That's what we're being introduced to. So when it comes to manhood, what it means to be a man, who do you look to? Do you look to Clint Eastwood or maybe William Wallace? The older generation, it was John Wayne, but today it's Dwayne The Rock Johnson or maybe it's Elon Musk or maybe it's Justin Timberlake or maybe it's Chipper Jones or maybe it's who, 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 who do you look for? And then if you start to think about the qualities that make a real man, what are they? You'll hear guys say, real men drink their coffee black. I'm like, really? Or real men wear boots and drive trucks. Really? Or real men hunt and fish. I'm like, Dustin, I'm not really sure that's a biblical definition of manhood. Real men are athletic. Real men have beards. Real men. But what is a real man? What is a real man? Who is the most influential man in your life? Who do you admire? What was it about that most influential man in your life, characteristics and lifestyle that caused you to gravitate toward him? I believe that God has given us the perfect model of manhood and masculinity, and his name is Jesus Christ. I believe if we're looking for what a real man is, a true man is, and for what authentic masculinity is, from God's definition, we look no further than Jesus Christ. He was the perfect portrait of masculinity. But again, as I've established over the last weeks, we reject God's design. And we've gravitated into this mindset where you question God and you ignore God and you reject God. Ultimately, you eliminate God and you become your own small g God and you get to call the shots. What would cause a man to reject God's design on his life? Those are questions I think we must ask. When we see such a confused identity amongst people today, what would cause them to reject God's design? And as I've looked, I've seen, and many, they went through, Jeff, deep trauma. There was betrayal and hurt. There was so much confusion. They had nobody to model it. All the cultural pressure, starving for somebody to accept them. And so we see that sin has dis distorted humanity at every level. But I truly believe, and I truly believe that it is an act of worship. For you and I, guys, to cultivate 
and celebrate what authentic manhood is all about. We have to cultivate it. We have to discover it. We have to get the proper working definition of what it's about. So think about this. A real man. Let me give you four attributes, if you will, or thoughts here, observations. A real man. One, I would say, a real man knows his purpose. A real man knows his purpose. When it comes to who am I, why am I here, where am I going, what value do I add? A real man knows his purpose. He knows his identity. He knows his worth and significance. He knows that God is wanting to do something in him, with him, and through him to have influence and impact. A real man knows his purpose. What is your purpose? The purest definition of purpose for humanity, not just guys, but gals alike. My purpose is what? To know God to enjoy God, to glorify God, to worship God, to walk with God. Why do you exist? What is your purpose? That's it. To know God. To get so familiar with God and acquainted with God and yield to God and surrender to God. When I look at guys that are real men, I go, that's a real man right there. He, he, he knows his purpose. A second thought I would tell you is this, a real man refuses to be passive. He refuses to be passive. A real man will initiate. He sets the tone inside of his home. He adds value to other people. A real man is an initiator. Most guys are just react and respond kind of guys. They're passive. But when we start to look at a real man, what does a real man do? Adam, the silence of Adam, it hijacked humanity. You were to speak up. You were to stand up for your wife in the garden when the serpent came to her. A real man will stand up. He knows what's happening in his family. He's got a pulse inside the home. He knows the heartbeat of his wife. A third observation would be a real man. He welcomes accountability and embraces responsibility. Accountability, if you had to define it, here's why I, here would be the definition I would give you. Accountability is when I would say, Drew, I give you permission to count the abilities that God has given me. You are a brother. You're walking with God. So as we walk with each other, Drew, Neil, Neil, you've got permission to count the abilities that you know that God has given me. I've got permission to count the ability that God has given you. Accountability is when you allow and trust another man to put his eyes on your life, knowing that he wants to see you be all you can be and the best you can be for the glory of God, which implies that a real man doesn't hide and cover and live in deception. He goes, hey, man, I want to be accountable. That, that would be a real man. And a real man embraces responsibility because you start to look at a person's life and you go, man, if you have ability without being responsible with that ability, you become a liability not only to yourself, to your family, the collateral damage that you will cause. Man, you've got to be responsible. And I remember even with our five kids, but specifically with my boys, as I looked at Benji, Jesse, and Caleb, the one thing, son, I care most about is that you learn to take responsibility for your thoughts, for your actions, for your life. If you learn nothing else by the time you leave this home here, I want you to learn to be responsible. People have asked me over the years, so what do you do? What do you mean, what do I do? 
I mean, I pastor, I shepherd, I disciple, I do a variety of things. But I come back and I will make this statement to them, Daniel. I get paid to do one thing. One thing. Oh, you get paid to preach, right? You get paid? No. You get paid to counsel, right? No. What do you get paid for, Tim? I get paid to be responsible. Responsible in my life, responsible in my marriage, responsible with the word of God, responsible in counseling with somebody else. What do you get paid for? To be responsible. And the more obedient you are to the smaller opportunities that God tees you up with, the more he will open up. And the more he will open up. When he knows that he can trust you, Seth, with little, he will give you much. A fourth observation would be this. A real man lives and leads courageously. Courageously. Courage means mental and moral fortitude to keep persevering. He doesn't throw the towel in quick. He stays with it. It's a willingness to confront those fears and doubts that you have and step into them anyway. Do you have fears at times? Yes. Do you have doubts at times? Yes. But I have to allow my faith to be greater than my fear, my faith to be greater than my doubts. When you see a person that is living a courageous life, they look at doubt and fear and step into it anyway. It implies that you're doing what is right, you're doing what is good, no matter what the opposition may be. Make sense? What is a real man? What does it look like for us to grow into manhood? My mentor, Crawford Loritz, was talking to me years ago. And he was teaching, he was teaching a concept and thought called the five phases of manhood. And I said, what, what, what do you mean by that, the five phases? He said, let me break them down for you. He said, you've got boyhood. Then you have adolescence. You've got manhood. Then we call the next stage becoming a mentor and then moving into becoming a patriarch. I said, so how would you break them down? And so Crawford said, a working definition of a boy would be this, Timmy. He's irresponsible. He's totally reliant. He is very impulsive. He lives for the moment, and he has a I deserve entitlement mindset. When you look at little boys, watch them, impulsive, irresponsible, totally reliant. We're blessed at times to be able to keep our grandkids, and Jesse's little one is nine months old, and I can't wait to see that little guy grow. But Cedar and Arrow are four and two, and when you look at them, they're just little boys. They're impulsive. I mean, they'll be in one room, and before you know it, they're somewhere else, and they're over here grabbing something off this counter, and before you know it, they got sweet potatoes, and then they're unrolling toilet paper, and I'm like, man, look at them. They're just impulsive all over the place, but they live for the moment, and you with younger kids, you're like, man, that's the stage that I'm in, but when you start to move out of this boyhood, childhood stage, we move into what is called adolescence, and this is a critical stage of life. In adolescence, what you'll see is you'll see these, these guys specifically, they, they, they refuse to take personal responsibility for things. There's always deflection and denial. In the stage of adolescence, we start to declare our self-centeredness. Who are you to tell me what to do? We start to live out of giftedness and not out of brokenness and humility. We declare, we declare and desire that we're going to live the freedoms of manhood. But we want the responsibilities of a childhood. Watch an adolescent. 
Who are you to tell me what to do? And they start to go through puberty and they go through these stages of life and they're like, they think they're a man, but deep down inside you cut them open. They're irresponsible. They're still impulsive. Can I tell you something? 60 years on the planet. 30 plus years in ministry. The sobering reality is that so many guys that I meet that chronologically may be 40 or maybe 50 or maybe whatever, they live in what I call stranded adolescence. They're stuck. They still function like they did when they were a junior in high school. It should not be. God wants us to move toward manhood. A working definition of manhood is a man will crucify himself his self-centeredness. He refuses to live by freedoms, and he now starts to live by obligation. He will make statements like, I can't do that anymore, guys. I'm a responsible dude. He starts to clean up his playgrounds and his playmates and his play toys. He becomes a responsible thinker. He initiates. He's accountable. He leads. He loves. Watch a real man. We'll break him down here in a minute in Titus chapter 1. And then as we start to settle into manhood, and that was my prayer even as I was raising my boys. I remember even Caleb, who is now 19, looking at him a few years back saying, hold on, you're still a young man. I can't have a man conversation with you yet. You're still functioning like an adolescent. I want to have manhood conversations with you, son, but you're not there. I had the same talks with Benji, the same talks with Jesse, and then all of a sudden I start seeing more maturation and more growth and more taking the initiative and more refusing to be passive and stepping up to the plate and going, now now we can have manhood talks. But we don't want to stop at manhood. The heartbeat inside of us should be that we want to become mentors of other people. A mentor is selfless. A mentor is secure, reliable, trustworthy. They live out of grace. And they have a I don't deserve anything mindset. If I deserved anything, it would be death and hell. I, I don't deserve anything. And a person who is a mentor, watch them. They live out of so much humility. They don't have all this arrogance. Their identity is rooted based on who they are in Christ, not who they are in people. And you watch a mentor and they start to shepherd the hearts of other people. I believe God is wanting to raise up at the Cross Loganville a group of guys that refuse to stay in stranded adolescence. Guys that embrace the assignment of manhood. Guys that become mentors for that next generation. I believe God today is wanting to speak to many of you in this room and raise you up. Can I tell you something? There is nothing more of a delight inside of a wife to see her husband crucify his self-centeredness, start to live a responsible life, start to live with accountability. She looks and she goes, I'm so proud of him. He leads He loves, he directs, I trust him. He takes the initiative for our family. He knows what's up. He gets up. He's growing up. He's got awareness. Oh, I love that man. That's what your wife is starving for. 
And then the hope is to become a, pat- a patriarch. That's where you start to pass the torch to the next generation. That's where you're passing messages on to a generation that's not even born yet. That's a person that has become such a life breather, so liberated that he is impacting and influencing others that are not even born yet. I spoke at a men's uh, event last night. And after I finished uh, speaking, Benji was with me. And so Benji comes over, and we're standing there worshiping. And he comes over, and he's got a couple of cups and the communion cups. And he goes, uh, hey, 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 Dad, let's do communion. I'm like, son, I would love to do communion. So we, we kneel down. And uh, he said, let me, let me pray for us before we do communion, Dad. And it brought me to my knees. But he said, Father, as he started praying, he said, thank you that Dad and I can step into this time of communion as followers of you who desire to yield to you. And then he said this, then he said this, then he said this. He goes, God, thank you for Paul Paul. He was talking about my daddy. He goes, thank you for Paul Paul. Thank you that he absolutely reversed the curse in that cash gene pool. Thank you for Paul Paul standing in the gap. Thank you for Paul Paul surrendering to you. Thank you that he prayed over his family that included my dad. Thank you for the legacy that he set in motion. Thank you for the patriarch that he was to this family. And as he continued to pray, I mean, tears welled up in my eyes. I didn't grow up in church. Mom and dad didn't go to church. But when my dad surrendered to Christ, about 15 months before I did, he set in motion. He said no to the world. He said yes to Jesus. And I was like, you're right. My daddy was a patriarch. And I want to be a patriarch. My dad is speaking right now to Cedar and Arrow and these other kids. It says in Hebrews 11 regarding When Cain killed Abel, it says this, And Abel, though he is dead, through faith he continues to speak. When you read that text and you think some 6,000 years ago he was killed, but through faith he continues to speak. And through faith we can send a message to generations, Brian, that has never been born. We can reverse the curse. We can break down the strongholds. Come on, Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So Titus 1 verse 5 says, Paul writing, Titus, I left you in Crete so that you would straighten out some things that were left undone. You're going to be pastoring there. I believe in you. You've got what it takes. And then he says this, when you start to plant these churches and you're overseeing churches, Let me tell you what an elder looks like. For the sake of the conversation today, I would take the word elder, and in parentheses, I would write the word godly man. I believe when you read 1 Timothy 3, as well as Titus 1, when it comes to the qualifications and the responsibilities of what an elder, pastor, shepherd should be, I believe that that 
is the target that every guy should be shooting at. That's the target. Titus 1, godly man. A godly man must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife. And his children must be believers who do not rebel against God. A godly man must live a blameless life. Listen to all these must statements. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or even dishonest with money. He must be hospitable. He must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief and the trustworthy message of the word of God that he was taught, then he'll be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they're wrong. I want to unpackage this for you. Please open your heart, guys. I'm telling you, this is what God desires. This is what your wife is starving for in a man. It starts by saying a godless, a godly man must live a blameless life. Some of the other translations say he must be above reproach. You know what that means? It means that when others start to attack you and try to throw dirt on your name, your character, and your reputation, a guy that is living a blameless life above reproach means that when they throw this mud and dirt, it doesn't stick to him. It's not true of who he is. And that is the desire that God has for you, Vic. That when other people would speak ill and make slanderous, derogatory statements toward you, that they would look and say, Adam, it doesn't stick to him. He's a blameless guy. Dirt don't stick to him. And then he starts to unpackage it. The first quality that he talks about in being blameless is, it's about having a strong marriage. He says that a godly man will be faithful to his wife. You don't have to get married to be a godly man, Tommy. You can be a godly man and stay single for years. But if you are married, your marriage is your top priority to God outside of your relationship to God. A real man will do whatever it takes to have the healthiest marriage that he can possibly have. A real man will. Here would be my question to you. Does your wife Regret marrying you? If your wife had a mulligan and she could go back and do a, a redo, does she regret marrying you? When she married you, did she hit the jackpot or did she marry a jack leg? <laughs> We're in church here, Tara. Tara, y'all be careful down here now. When she married you, was it a regret? Did she hit the jackpot? Is your wife better off today because she married you? Is she? Don't you think that would be a very fair and sensible question to, to entertain? He must be faithful to his wife. This implies sexual purity. This implies being set apart for God's glory and for the good of your wife. 
He is faithful to his wife, which means he concentrates, he concentrates his sexual energy toward his wife when it comes to the visual, the mental, and the physical. He's a godly man. He's committed to his wife. You know, this has hijacked so many guys, even in the church, and guys that occupy a podium and pulpit over the years. What happened? Your energies was not driven toward Christ and given to your wife. You allowed them to get perverted and distorted. A real man will stay away from porn. A real man will stay away from strip clubs. A real man will stay away from flirting with other women. A real man will. A real man does not commit adultery. A real man is faithful to God and faithful to his wife. He's faithful to God. He's faithful to his wife. About two years ago, Benji asked me, hey, Dad, can I swing by and see you? Sure. He came by the church that day, came up into my office, and he said, talked about whatever for a few minutes, and he said, I got a question for you, Dad. I said, okay. He said, have you been faithful to mom over the years, Dad? Have you been true to mom? That's a very humbling question to be asked. And with tears in my eyes, I looked at him, and I said, by the grace of God, my flesh would gravitate in a million different directions, son. But by the grace of God, God has kept me faithful to your mom. Not only on the horizontal, relational, emotional side, but I'm telling you, he's kept me totally faithful to her. And you know how humbling it was when he left that day after we visited for another 45 minutes? I sat there, and I'm like, Lord, there's nothing good that dwells within my flesh. And Lord, I know for any guy, if they yield and fight and surrender and run to you, Lord, you can, you can keep us faithful. Lord, so many guys have screwed it up, and God, I don't want to screw it up. I want, I want to be faithful to you and faithful to Barb. That's what I want to do. When he left that day, I was so humbled. I'm like, man, I never knew that my son would ask me that question. But it brought me to my knees. He's like, you stay with me one more day. You walk with me one more day. You yield to me one more day, Tim. Don't you take your eyes off of me. And I'm telling you, if you jacked it up, there's grace, there's forgiveness, and there's love. And the enemy wants to steal, and he wants to kill, and he wants to beat you up and destroy your life. But I can promise you that God says, hey, hey let me restore you. Even what the enemy has tried to eat away. He wants to restore you. A second characteristic of a real man is he's a godly father. He leads his children to the Lord. When you ponder this, it doesn't mean that your children are going to be perfect. You're not. Children are going to be perfect? No, that's out of your control. They were born little sinners with a free will. So were you. But a godly man does everything that he can to influence his children to know Jesus. 
man, I'm pointing you in that direction. I want to manage this household and point you to Christ. A godly man, his children look at him and go, I trust him. I respect him. I honor him. I want to obey him. Man, he's got my heart, not just my behavior. There's so many dads that I've looked at over the years, and they can get their kids to behave a certain way. But when it comes to really having the heart of the kid, they don't have it. Man, you discipline your kid toward love and toward life. You want to see them flourish. And the thing I would tell you is this. It's impossible to be absent and to have this kind of influence. You've got to be actively present in your kids' lives. You may have jobs that take you away for a few days here and there, but in order to shape that next generation, you've got to be present with them. I remember some 11-plus years ago when I was interviewing Nick Slade about coming on staff here to be our worship pastor and just to help shepherd with me. And I sat down with him at a restaurant over at the Mall of Georgia. And I said, Nick, what do you want to do with your life? I mean, you've got a cousin who has started a big-time rock band named The Fray. Your uncle has written all this stuff. You've been around music all your life. Nick, what do you want to do? And he goes, I want to lead worship in a local church. And I want to sleep with my wife every night. And I want to raise my daughters. I'm like, that's what you want to do. He goes, yes, I want to raise my daughters. And we celebrate right now. Nick and Lisa and their family have been here with us. We just celebrated a few days ago their 11th anniversary of being here. Give it up for Nick. Incredible, incredible, incredible. But when I look at Julia and Natty Kate up here singing with their mom and dad today, I'm like, they love their daddy. They respect their daddy. They honor their daddy. Their daddy's not perfect. Their daddy knows that they've got a free will and they're going to have to repent and come to Christ. But I'll look and go, he leads and manages his household well. That's a responsibility. We go on to read that a real man, he's not arrogant. He's not prideful. He doesn't think he's better than everybody else. Pride will absolutely destroy and annihilate relationships. It will keep you from serving others and loving others. Even Proverbs says, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. The truth is, as I look across this room this morning at every guy, I can tell you, hey, man, you're priceless. But without Christ, you're hopeless. God has placed value and dignity inside of you. And if you're going to live it out, it's going to require humility. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just that you think of yourself less. And having a posture of humility is so crucial. He goes on to say in this text of Titus 1, a real man, a godly man, he's not hot-tempered. He doesn't have a bad temper. He's not, he's not all hot-headed about life. When you read that, a godly man is slow to boil. He has patience. He knows how to control his anger and his temper. He has control over his emotions. I would say, man, a, a guy that really is walking with the Lord's got a longer fuse. People that are hot-headed, people that are bad-tempered people, they make you walk on eggshells when you are around them. They put everybody on the defense. And they're easily offended themselves. And he goes, no, 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 that's not being a real godly man. He goes on to say a real godly man is gentle. He remains calm even in the midst of a storm. 
The word for gentle is similar to the word for meekness. And it means he's got like this controlled power. It's the portrait of that horse being tamed, that stallion. Look at that. But it's tamed. It's power under control. And that's what he says. A godly man, a real man. He's tenderhearted. He's compassionate. He cares. But he's controlled with the power that he has. He goes on to say he's not a heavy drinker. He's not a heavy drinker. He's not given a strong drink. Why? Because a real man wants to be sober. A real man, a godly man, he realizes that getting drunk and getting high will dissipate the Holy Spirit's work in his life. And you're more vulnerable to temptation. You're more vulnerable to the enemy coming and attacking you. So a godly man looks and he says, I don't want to do anything that would hinder me from being able to hear God's voice. I don't want to do anything that would open myself up to vile temptation. I don't want to do that. I want to stay sober so that I can protect my family, so that I can lead my family, so that I can be the example that God wants me to be. You ever seen people's lives just get wrecked because of alcoholism? A godly man is not a bully. He's not violent. The word violent there literally means apt to fight. He's mad. He's mean-spirited. He's a troublemaker. He's a brawler. He's quick to explode. He goes, no, 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 not a godly man, not an elder. He, he doesn't want to hurt people. His heart is to help people. He's not seeing how he can bully and intimidate anybody else. He, he wants to help. He wants to serve. He goes on to say here that he's not greedy for money. He's not greedy for money. And we realize that money is not evil, but the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Money can absolutely hijack a guy's life. He goes at marriage. He goes at kids. He goes at alcoholism. He goes at your wallet. He goes at so many things here that expose a man. Hey, hey, Titus, when you're looking for a godly man that can help lead, here's some things to look for. A real man uses his money to love God and to love others. A greedy man uses God and others to chase after money. He goes, no, 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 no. A godly man is tamed He doesn't try to buy his happiness. And a godly man does not measure his self-worth with his net worth. He's not addicted to all this money stuff. He's got loose hands with it. He says he's hospitable. He loves what is good. And that literally means, man, he's got a heart to welcome strangers, those that need help, those that are knocked down. My neighbor, Dallas Hopp, I'm telling you right now, there's very few guys that I've met that genuinely love and care about the underdog and the hurting more than he does. I look and I'm like, man, I love the way he loves. A godly man is sensible, has sound judgment, and he makes wise decisions. His decisions are based on the word of God. When it comes to how he leverages and uses his time, his money, even looking at his own personal health relationships, when you look at a godly man, you'll go, he's got a well-ordered life. There's a lot of wisdom there. The guy's very sensible. He's well-ordered. I'm like, that would be an honorable thing. 
over those last seven years of working day after day after day with Dustin Wilbanks. I've known him for 20 plus years. But the thing I love so much about Dustin, I'm like, man, when you sit there and talk through and pray through issues, you go, he's sensible. I know he comes across like he ain't got a lick of sense, but when you sit down with him, he'll blow your mind. There's so much wisdom. I trust his ability to make judgments. And I'm like, man, I respect that dude so much. A godly man, a righteous man is righteous. That's what he says right here. He obeys God. He's not addicted to comfort. He's not addicted to ease. He's like, man, God has declared me righteous, but I want to live in such a way that I can form my body, my mind, my soul, everything to the Lord. I just want to live out his righteousness. He's holy. The word holy here, Steve, is only used eight times. There's another word that is used multiple times, but when he talks about holy here, he talks about being devoted and consecrated to God with everything he has. That dude is holy. He tithes, he serves, he shares, he loves, he leads his family. And I'll look at that and I'm like, yes, Steve, you do that, brother. He's self-controlled. He has dominion over himself. He's not ruled by his emotions and his passions and his feelings. Here, let me, let me close you with this. And this is what he says. He's a man of the word. He's a man of truth. That's how he wraps up this in Titus 1. I want you guys take, take this passage, take every word and ask God to show you, am I lacking? Is this true of me? He closes by saying he must have a strong belief in the trusted message, which is the word of God. Then, 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 then. He, he's laid out all this stuff, righteous. Holy, blameless, all this stuff. He's got a strong belief in the word of God. Then he'll be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching. And he'll be able to show those who oppose it where they're wrong. But he'll do it with gentleness and love. How do you measure up? Seriously. Are you a real man based on scripture? That would be the question, right? Am I truly a real man, a godly man? What areas am I lacking? What is the Holy Spirit pointed out in your life as you sit there this morning to go, I've been trying to work with you on this area, but you've, you've become calloused. You're, you're rejecting me. Hey, you know I've really grown you a lot in this area. Remember where you were? See where you are now? I'm growing you in these attributes that matter, these godly attributes. What has the Holy Spirit showed you this morning?